Uh, let me clarify. I know technology. There we go. Technology. I was just fixing to talk about technology, and here we go. I know it can be a little confusing, so let me try to clarify. The folks out in the foyer are here to help you with an app that you can put on your phone that gives you access to the Melanie Park directory. So if you need to call somebody and think, I don't remember their number, just look up their name. The number's there. It even has addresses. If you hit the address, it'll take you to Google's map. It'll guide you to their front door. It's a really handy little tool that you can use. And, it's, and anybody who wants that app is welcome to get it. What Linda was referring to is on your bulletin, it says, I want to be included in Melanie Park Alexio. Well, Alexio is where the database of all that information is kept. And most of you are already in that. In fact, if you have the app, you can go on and probably see the information. Well, if the information's there, you don't need to check that box. But if it's wrong or you're not included and you want to be, let us know and we'll make sure you get in there. So hopefully that helps clarify that. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you, I'm excited about a couple of things. One is just having returned from the men's retreat, and just uh, several things were encouraging for me. One, Steve Dirks, who is our speaker, is the camp director out at Lone Tree, where we are sending our kids this year. I had not known Steve until this weekend, and having had a chance to sit under his teaching and to spend time with him, I am very excited about our kids going to camp under his direction. What a godly man who had such a great message. So I'm really encouraged about our relationship with Lone Tree and our kids being involved in camp there this summer. So that was really fun. The other thing that I was excited about uh, this year that was unique was the fact that I think probably for the first time ever, when I looked out into the audience of men who were at the men's retreat this year, those who were 40 and younger were the vast majority. Us old guys over 40 were in the minority. What was really exciting about that, in fact, let me say this, I know that there were more high school kids, I said that wrong, high school young men who were at the men's retreat this year than we've ever had in our history. And so the topic just so happened to be spiritual leadership. And we've been praying in this church that the Lord would raise up a new generation of spiritual leaders. And so I looked out this week at the men at the men's retreat, and I saw the prayer being answered. I saw it with my own eyes, and I was deeply encouraged by what the Lord is doing in the life of this church. So this kind of leads me to the other thing that I'm excited about, and that's what we're going to do next weekend, uh, next Sunday. We're calling it the fifth Sunday of family worship. And what we're going to do is set aside that Sunday and really celebrate this idea of raising up the next generation of Christian disciples. That's why we're doing a baby dedication and highlighting graduating seniors in the same Sunday because many of those graduating seniors were here when they were dedicated as a baby. And we're just going to celebrate all the things that God is doing in the life of this church, and it is really going to be a great Sunday. And so I want you to pray for it. I want you to come and anticipate a real worshipful time of seeing the evidences of God's hand at work in the life of this church. And I hope that what that does for us is it really turns our hearts to the Lord in gratitude, in worship, in thankfulness. And I hope in some ways, too, it motivates us to continue to be faithful with what the Lord is doing so that we can stand up there 10 years from now and do the same thing and see the same message being portrayed as God's work in the life of this church. So 
exciting stuff. I'm really grateful. Um, this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a divergence from what we normally do. Uh, we're going to start our study in Acts in a couple of weeks, but this morning, uh, I want to share with you some things that uh, have happened with me in my life recently. As I mentioned in the back of the bulletin, if you've had a chance to read that, I attended a, a conference for pastors, um, actually 12,000 uh, church leaders uh, in Louisville, Kentucky this past week. It was called uh, Together for the Gospel. Uh, I went to this conference with my friend Dusty Thompson down the street at Redeemer Church and then C.W. Faulkner, who is the pastor at First Baptist Wolforth. These are men that I pray with regularly, have a great friendship and a partnership and ministry with. And it was just fun to spend the week with them at this conference and sitting under the teaching of some very godly men that I respect. And so this morning, if it's okay with you, I want to take some time just to share some things that the Lord has put on my heart, having had that time uh, in the recent weeks. The theme of the conference was uh, distinct from the world. Each of the pastors who were at this conference gave a message encouraging Christian leaders in today's church. It was a call to be uncompromising in the work of the gospel. It was an admonition not to conform to the culture because according to God's design, the church is intended to be distinct from the world. So we have to be careful as church leaders not to build ministries around mass appeal. There's a real danger, and these men would admit this fact because they spoke to it while they were preaching. There's a very real danger with celebrity pastors, with special events, with ministry productions, because we can get so enamored by the performance and and appealing to the mass of people that we lose sight of the message of the gospel. We can have a very popular ministry that just simply does not have any real meaningful truth. And yet God has designed the church to be distinct from the world, to be a city on a hill. The pattern of our lives should stand in stark contrast to what we see in the world around us. Instead of blending in with society, God has called us to be set apart. Our lives should proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. Who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. In fact, uh, Paul might have said it best when he wrote to the Ephesians. He says, for we were once darkness. Not once in darkness. For we were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Before we look at the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we need your light to penetrate dark places in our heart. Lord, we need you to reveal in our hearts hearts and in our minds, places that need to be exposed to your grace, your forgiveness, your love. Lord, help us to find 
that what our heart longs for most is only satisfied in you. You are our hope, our peace, our security. And so this morning, would you enlighten us into ways in which we can grow in our understanding, to live and abide in that truth as people of God set apart to be distinct from the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to look at a real familiar passage in 1 John. So if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John, um, let me lay a little groundwork of this letter that uh, John writes. In case you're not familiar where 1 John is, go to Revelation, last book in the Bible, turn left. Just a couple of books over is uh, 1 John. And in this letter, John is writing to believers. These are people who really have been true to the faith. They've withstood false teaching. They've remained united together in the midst of some real, real difficulties. But John wants them to know that there's still a danger that, that, that threatens the life of the church. It's a subtle danger that's actually hidden within the family of God. It's a subtle desire to blend in instead of being set apart. It's an attempt to avoid opposition by sort of kind of blurring the lines. But John writes this letter to make a real clear distinction. He wants us to understand that there should really be no confusion between those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. So if you're in the book of 1 John, and you look in that first chapter, look at verse 5. You'll see how he begins to highlight this contrast between those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. He says in verse 5, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John begins in that little section with verse 5 by establishing an absolute unchangeable truth. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Then, in verse 6, he contrasts that absolute truth with what he identifies as a dangerous lie. Where he says that if we have relationship with God, if we have fellowship with God who is light, and yet walk in darkness and walk in this pattern of sin, he says we lie. And we don't practice the truth. In other words, practicing sin and professing faith are mutually exclusive. They just can't coexist. In verse 7, he goes on to explain that, that true Christians by no means are perfect, but they do rejoice in being forgiven because the light of God has exposed sin and their heart and revealed a need for a Savior. And instead of standing justified, They bow in submission and in repentance before a holy and righteous God. 
it's because of this repentance. It's, it's because of this crying out to God for the need of a Savior and His forgiveness that the Bible tells us that they have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And not just once. This is an ongoing reality in the life of the believer. In fact, verse 9 tells us that Christians are people of confession. Look at what it says. If we, he's talking about Christians here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Christians are those who cultivate a heart of repentance before a just and a holy and a righteous God. They do not take grace for granted. They strive to to walk in obedience in the pursuit of holiness. You see, it's those who don't admit their sin who are in the greatest danger. Because unless you admit your sin, you will see no need for a Savior. You'll only be justified in your own eyes. That's why if you look at Uh, verse 6, begin at verse 8, begin at verse 10, and if you go over to chapter 2, verse 4, they all begin in the same way. Uh, If we say, or the one who says, what John is doing here is he's pointing to a false profession of faith. He's saying you cannot claim to know God and yet walk in unrepentant sin. James says it even more explicit. He says, everyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy to God. Now, that's the groundwork that Paul, or John has laid in his letter. So let's look at our passage now in chapter 2, verse 15. In order to be distinct from the world, John tells his reader and he tells us in verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What I believe John is describing here is true in all of our lives, and it's what I will call a battle for allegiance. Because keep in mind, we all serve some type of God, and that's been true from the beginning of humanity. Whether it's Muslim or Buddhist or Christian or atheist, it doesn't matter. We are all people of faith. The only difference between us is where we place our faith. We are all people of faith. John is telling the church, don't put your faith in the world. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. This is not where you will find the soul-satisfying happiness that only God can provide. Now, It's important to know when John talks about the world, what he's talking about here is an earthly system under Satan's control. In Colossians, I mentioned this verse a while ago, it's what he calls the domain of darkness. It's the same thing. It's the world. And when we live according to the world, our minds are polluted with 
with unbelief. We follow the desires of our sinful nature. But those who have been rescued from that domain of darkness should walk differently. They should live as children of the light. And so John is calling the church not to have a divided allegiance. He's highlighting love in this context as, as a decision of devotion. It, it's what we hold in highest regard because of its importance and, and value in our life. Loving the world would be accepting its answer for where you find peace, where you find satisfaction, where you find security and hope. It's looking for what the promise of the world says is true. That's why a decision to follow Christ often puts us in opposition to the claims of the world. Now, we know that's true because that's precisely what Jesus told his disciples, right? In John chapter 15, verse 19, he tells them, if you were of the world, the world would love you. The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world, what? Hates you. The world hates you. Let me give you a very relevant example of how this is true. How many of you read the New York Times article about the creepy infiltration of Chick-fil-A in New York City? Anybody read that? I'm just curious. A few people did, okay? According to the author, this is a creepy infiltration of Chick-fil-A moving into New York City because the company is built on Christian values. He goes on to highlight the fact that within its headquarters in Atlanta, you'll see Bible verses written on the wall. You'll actually see a, a statue of Jesus washing the di- disciples' feet there in their headquarters in Atlanta. He, he questions if Chick-fil-A should even be allowed into the community of New York City because of the corporate pur- purpose, quote, of giving glory to God. And then he kind of ramps up the rhetoric, and he says, he describes the restaurant as, quote, a proselytizing megachurch. And the cows in the commercials as, quote, the ultimate evangelist who, quote, promote brutality of the slaughterhouse. <laughs> he calls their arrival as a guerrilla insurgency or manure, manure brought in on the F train. Essentially what he's doing in this, this article is he's calling for a boycott of Chick-fil-A because, and here's why, their biblical values are a threat to American society. That's his point. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Faithfully following Christ puts you on a collision course with the values of this world, even your good deeds will be viewed with evil intent. Your sincere biblical convictions, a threat to society. As a result, and this is why we face them to the temptation to kind of bow to that pressure and, and blend in. 
instead of being set apart. We can, uh, in an effort to avoid opposition, we can just kind of blur the lines, avoid certain topics. But John is trying to make it clear to us that there should be no uh, confusion about those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. In the same way that being a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God, very much being a friend of God makes you an enemy in this world. It is a battle of allegiance. Now look at verse 16 in our passage. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. This is what I have called the the triad of temptation. (laughs) It's Satan's most common strategy of temptation. We see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Eve. We see it show up again in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I'm convinced that it is his primary way of influencing people, including you and I, in the world today. It is a temptation where Satan would take something that was initially good and turning it into a selfish desire. He he turns a a natural, a very God-given desire into a selfish pleasure. The word lust that's used in this passage is that Greek word epithumia. I've talked about it before because I think it's my favorite word in the Bible. It means over-desire. And so... Lust of the flesh is an over-desire for satisfaction. In the garden, Satan uses the apple, which the Bible says that the woman saw it and saw that it was good for food. In the wilderness, the first temptation that Satan brought before Jesus was bread, also good for food. In and of themselves, good things That he will then twist and turn into a selfish, sinful desire. Because in both cases, he's wanting them to be satisfied with what they want over and above what God intends. It is a sinful desire to be satisfied outside the boundaries of God's design. It could be food. It could be sex, it could be money, it could be wine, which none of those things in and of themselves are inherently evil. James explains it this way. Listen to what he says. Grant and I memorized this verse recently, and it stuck to me when I was working through this passage. It says uh, this, beginning in James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted... When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust over desire. Then when that over desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin is seeking a satisfying pleasure outside the boundaries of God's design. It is a decision to do what I want. What I want, without regard to what God intends. The world is filled, absolutely inundated, with this kind of temptation. 
It's what many have called in our world today the morality of consent. The morality of consent. And in this view, as long as people give consent, whatever they choose should be a protected right. You be you. You be you. And it would be immoral for anyone to stand in the way of that desire. In fact, opposition to this morality of consent becomes an obstacle to human happiness, to human flourishing. We call it the morality of consent, but I'm here to tell you right now with utmost conviction, it's the lust of the flesh. That's what it is. It is part of Satan's temptation. I have a relevant example that took place this year as well. I had intended to give you details. I shared it with Terry, and she said, you can't do that. Too much information. So let me suffice it to say this. It took place this semester on a college campus in America, a public university. It was a university-sponsored, student-led week of unashamed immorality that would make Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street look like a church picnic. I read the article and I thought, this is inconceivable to me that this would be allowed, promoted, encouraged within the life of our society. But listen to this. We live in a culture where it is immoral to oppose another person's right to do what they want to do. That's what's now considered to be immoral. It's the morality of consent. The sinful decision to fulfill selfish desires. A decision to do what I want without any consideration of what God intends. And again, the world is filled with this brand of temptation. Now, right alongside the lust of the flesh is the lust of the eyes. This is the selfish appetite for something more. Not only as we look at the scripture, not only did it say that the apple was good for food, it goes on to say it was a delight to the eyes. In that second temptation of Jesus, Satan took him to the highest pinnacle on top of the temple so that he could see the city around him. You see, this is Satan's attempt to tempt us with something more than what we already have. It's coveting something we see, something that we don't currently possess, something that we determine to be good for us, many times the expense, at the expense of someone else around us. Let me give you an example of what this might look like today, and it's not quite as obvious as a week of immorality, but I think this is just as evident, and unfortunately, I think it's evident in every church I've ever known in the modern era, including our own. It's what I'll call... A religious preference. For most people, this is how they choose a church. Based on religious preferences. Things like, do I like the pastor? Do I like the way he dresses? Is, is he relevant? Is he entertaining? Probably the biggest one in our world today is the music. Do I like the music? Is it, is it upbeat? Is it the music I prefer? Does it help me worship? I like this, the student ministry. Do my kids have fun? 
do they enjoy themselves? For most people, this is how we choose the church. In churches today, I think in many ways, ours being no exception, we can end up creating a ministry based on people's preferences. In fact, many times, the more narrow we make those preferences, the more successful the church will be. I can attract young professionals with cool music, skinny jeans, and short sermons. And before you know it, it'll be the fastest growing church in America. That's the way it works. It's true. Now, I want you to hear me on this. We may all prefer, myself included, I'm just as guilty, to be around people who are just like us. But I believe it is a worldly desire and not a biblical truth. In fact, I believe the Bible requires us to accommodate people who are not like us. I believe that's true Christian love. To consider the needs of someone else as more important than our own. That's accommodating the preferences of someone else that are different than mine. The church should be an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. And what do we know about heaven? We know that it's going to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, people of Jesus-loving people. That's what heaven's going to be like. A a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, Jesus-loving people of God. And that's exactly what we should see in our churches today. Self-sacrifice should be a trademark of Christian love. Now, since I talked about music, let me give you a personal example. When I was in my 20s, coming to Melanie Park Church and loved music and loved singing, but I'll admit, whenever they threw a hymn up on the screen, I was like, oh, uh. Not another hymn. I don't like those. They're old. They're, I don't know. I just don't like the hymns. And then over time, the Lord convicted me because here's what I recognized. Is that when I had a response to that kind of music, I began to look around me to see other people, typically an older generation, who lit up when that hymn came up. Because for them, that brought back memories and connections relationships and messages of truth that spoke to their heart unlike any other song you could put up there. (laughs) And I got really convicted because I was like, okay, how can I sit here and pretend to worship God and not recognize what a blessing that is for someone else? Why should it all be about my preferences? And what I began to realize that as I soon recognized what a blessing that was for someone else, and began to rejoice in the fact that it was that blessing to them, I began to enjoy that music more. It became important to me. And now when I'm in a hard place, you know what I sing? Hymns. That's what I sing. That's what comes to my mind. See, the lust of the eyes always wants what's best for me pride of life, then that 
is kind of the next step that makes us believe that that's what's most important, is what's best for me. Satan tells Eve, you can become like God. In the wilderness, he tells Jesus, this city could belong to you. In both cases, he's saying, look, you just got to trust me more than you trust him. That's the temptation. Satan tells us, look, here's the deal. You can call the shots. You can make up the rules. You can do what you want. It's the subtle temptation to say that you've got this. You've got this. And I think even for us, we might say, oh, I I go to church, but not because I have to. Because quite frankly, I can choose not to go when I don't want to. It's the world we live in. The Christian faith becomes an add-on to my personal pursuits. It's a means to an end, either for me and sometimes even for our kids. The pride of life is ultimately making an idol of what we do, who we are, and the eyes of the world around us. It's the priority of personal pursuits over a life of sacrifice. It's looking for God and His blessing on what I want to do. Do you see how this triad of temptation develops? It begins with Satan's effort to take an inherently good thing and turn it into a selfish desire. And then when we taste sin, it never satisfies and always causes us to long for something more, something we see, something that we don't possess but we feel like we have to have, even at the expense of someone else around us. And pretty soon what's important to me becomes what's most important in the world. And that's what our life is brought into the domain of darkness because that's where the enemy lives. And that's where he wants us to be. That's why John says it's not from God. It's from the world. That's the domain of darkness. Look at how he continues in verse 17. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides Forever. Now, John's going to continue this contrast, but now he's going to shift it a little bit. He's going to compare the, the temporal versus the eternal. He's asking us to look at things and just stop for a minute and consider the ultimate outcome of the things that we are consuming, what we love, how we live our life, so that we can determine where those things are taking us. Don't just get lost in the moment and live in the moment and not look ahead. And see where this thing is taking you. Take a moment to see where it's going and where it's leading you. Because here's the reality. The workaholic will eternally be unfulfilled. The greedy will eternally be unsatisfied. The proud will be eternally disappointed. But the one who does the will of God will abide forever. And that word abide is key here. Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He says, abide in my love. Abide in my teaching. Jesus is really calling us to walk in the light, to to walk in fellowship with God, who is light, based on the 
forgiveness that is found through faith in Christ alone, both now and for all eternity. Peter might have summarized it best when he says, live no longer, listen to this, live no longer according to the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's where your soul finds rest. That's where your soul finds peace. That's where your soul finds security. Reminds me of that old song that we sing from time to time, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full. Look full in His wonderful face. And what happens? The things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. One of the most meaningful uh, messages I heard last week was from John Piper. In typical Piper passion, he talked about how the miracle of redemption includes uh, the miracle of new affections. Kind of reminds me of Jonathan Edwards' spiritual affections, the very famous classic work that he wrote. But he's trying to make the point, Piper's trying to make the point that part of the miracle of of redemption is new delights. In fact, he says that's the main difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a new delight in the heart of those who have been redeemed. As I mentioned earlier, Piper actually says in his sermon that everyone serves some kind of God. The Bible says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so he goes on, he says that your God And and my God is the thing in which we value or treasure most in our life. The good news of the gospel tells us that that only God can make us supremely happy. It, it, It sets us free from this fruitless chase of all these things that never satisfy and points us to the one source that ultimately and eternally does. That's the good news of the gospel. You see, the Bible says that in his presence is fullness of joy. That at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Piper makes this very bold claim. Listen to what he says. He says, if the gospel of Jesus Christ only brought us forgiveness. If the gospel of Jesus Christ only brought us justification. If the gospel of Jesus Christ only brought us escape from hell, but did not bring us into the soul-satisfying presence of God, it would not be good news. But it does. And so it is. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The miracle of redemption stirs within us what he calls glad dependence, thankful trust, fervent admiration, pleased submission, contented resting, heartfelt adoration. It's what Piper calls a glad delight in the glory of God. It's what was meant to be communicated in the song, Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. Things of the world grow strangely dim. 
in the light of His glory and grace. Because I promise you, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy me as only God can through faith in Christ alone. Now, let me get real personal with you and tell you that I understand that this is not something that is easy in the world in which we live and that we have to fight for joy. We have to strive for this life that we've been called to live that stands in such contrast to the world around us. So for me, this past few weeks have been challenging in many different ways, and I want to tell you that there was an event that occurred in my life recently that I didn't see coming. And when it happened, it sent me into a panic attack. I went off the cliff emotionally. I lost control because I was overwhelmed by fear. I I was consumed by every possible worst-case scenario that my mind could imagine. And it was a very dark, a very lonely place to be. And I realized, as my wife spoke truth to my life and my friends spoke truth to my life, that I had lost hold of what ultimately keeps me well. Remember the passage that I mention a lot, Psalm 62? You alone are my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. In you I will not be greatly shaken. I was greatly shaken. It's because I let go of the anchor of my soul. And I was reminded of how important it is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So that when those things come that we don't see, we are holding firmly to the only thing that will see us through. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So let me encourage you as we think about what is happening in the world around us to not be overwhelmed by fear. But actually rejoice in the hope of salvation through faith in Christ alone to rejoice in the new desires that are in our heart because of the miracle of redemption. A desire that helps us in those moments of despair to remember He alone is my rock and my salvation. Don't let go. Hang on. Trust in Him. And He will see you through. Not just now. But that is a promise for eternity. So don't just live for the moment. Look at where it's leading you. And when you look at Jesus, you see that he's leading you to eternal life. Where ultimately, everything is fulfilled, just as he said it would be. Let's pray together. God, I just want to take the opportunity to first say thank you for this church family. That they're a safe place where I can stand up in front of all these people and open up the messy parts of my heart and be honest about struggles that I endure and what is important for us all to understand about how much we need each other. We need the truth of your word. We need the work of your spirit. We need to fight for joy. 
Lord, help us to see what you've written through John and realize that, look, as long as we are on this earth, we will not be loved by this world. And in fact, as bad as things might get, the more the world turns into a sinful place, the more it will oppose the morality of what it means to follow Christ. And so, Lord, help us to stand strong, to turn our eyes on Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. So the things of the world, they grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. May we live firmly fixed, holding fast to your promises and the hope that we have in you, not just in this moment, but for all eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.